Well, good morning. My name is Eric. I get to be the pastor here. Just welcome. We're so glad you're here, whether it's your first time or you've been coming for a long time. We're doing this series called My Better Half. We're talking about relationships, whether you're single, whether you're married, uh, or maybe you're married and you find yourself single again. We're going to look at what does God's word say about relationships. And whenever we announce that we're doing these relationship series, I think there's really two reactions people have. I think a lot of the ladies are like, yes, great, we get to do a marriage series, a relationship series, and the guys are like, great, a relationship series, right? Because uh, a lot of guys, we kind of think of relationships like cars, like as long as they're running, we don't want to work on them, right? And, uh, and so we think, you know, when, when ladies, you say, we got to work on a relationship, we think, well, that means something must be broken. Well, it's good to get a tune-up every once in a while and just a check, and so that's what this series is going to be about, just remind ourselves, what does God's Word say about how to love others, how to love our better half? The thing is, in life, we all have these hopes and dreams and desires. Uh, maybe that's because of the way we grew up. And a lot of times, the way we grew up informs kind of what we want to do with, with our life, with our relationships. A lot of times, we either want to recreate the experience maybe that we grew up in, like we want to have a marriage or relationship like our parents, or we want to do something like completely opposite and do something totally different than the relationship that our parents had. And we have these hope, hopes, dreams, and desires. I was thinking about that, and so I grabbed, do you like my bag? This, is just, this bag kind of represents our hopes, our dreams, and desires. And we bring this into any relationship that we have. The reality is when you walk into a church for the first time, you bring your hopes, your expectations into that church. When you enter into a dating relationship or marriage, you have this whole bag full of hopes and dreams and expectations. When you enter into friendships, you have these hopes and you have these dreams and you have these expectations. You know, maybe when you're getting married and you're dating, you have different ideas on, you know, how many babies you're going to have, right? And, and you have kids, you're like, What's we're going to have one kid. And it's like, oh, nope, we're just going to have one dog. And, uh, you know, it's like, no, let's have two dogs and a puppy. You know, we got that. And then there's like, are we going to spend the in-laws with my in-laws or your in-laws? <laughs> True story, my in-laws uh, ringtone is Darth Vader's theme song. Don't tell her that. You know, who's going to do the cooking? You know, we have expectations. You're going to cook. We're going to be vegan. No, we're not. You know, or, you know, what are we going to drive? You know, I'm going to drive a truck or, no, it's going to be, you know, a minivan. Um, you know, even when, you know, we get married, what does our, you know, our wedding going to look like? Is it going to look the big church wedding? Is it going to be this? Is it going to be that? You know, we have these expectations, uh, you know, and then, guys, we have these expectations of, you know, what your wife is going to wear to bed. And... Um, Sometimes the expectations don't match the reality, am I right? But we have all these expectations, we have these hopes and dreams of what marriage, what our relationships, what our friendships, what life is going to look like. And the reality is that we carry around these expectations, these hopes, these dreams, and these desires kind of wherever we go. And this is part of who we are. And as a child, a lot of it is informed by maybe what our parents did or what our parents didn't do. And so we have this bag full of hopes of what we expect it to be like, and then maybe we meet someone. Maybe we belong to a church. Maybe we have this friendship. And what do we do so often is we actually take this bag of hopes and dreams and expectations, and then we, we give them to our spouse or pastor or friend and say, hey, make these come true, Right? It's so often that, that we give our hopes, our dreams, expectations to our spouse, to our friends, to whoever it might be, and say, hey, make these come true. But for the person that gets handed all those expectations, does that feel like hopes and dreams and desires? No, it just feels like unmet expectations that you are hoping I'm going to be someone that I'm not. 
And this whole series, what we want to look at is so often we just look at things from our own perspective. But we want to get a broader perspective. What does God say? How can we look at things so we can better understand those of us who are married, our better half? Just for all of us, how can we understand those around us so we don't just see things through our own perspective, but really see things from God's perspective? You know, in, in every relationship, in every family, there's this tension between the ideal and what is real. You know, what is real is you have four kids and you haven't slept through the night in 10 years. Can I get an amen? amen. What's real is maybe you and your spouse are starting to talk about divorce. Or what's real is you're a newlywed and it's not as easy as you thought it was going to be. What's real is your spouse won't come to church with you. There's this ideal picture I think we all have of what we want, our hopes, dreams, and then there's that tension between what is real and the ideal. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. That there's often this tension between what we have as our ideal and what is real. So what do we do when we face this tension between the ideal and what's real? What do we do? Because we all have these unmet expectations in our relationships with our friends, work, churches, and our marriages. Well, the good news is, is that we aren't the only ones that feel that way. This is a common human experience. And this is what people have been experiencing for thousands of years. And I love that God's word presents us real, unvarnished families that weren't, you know, just sugar-coated, that everything was perfect. No, we see all them in their warts and all. You know, how many of you like those reality shows where you get to go into someone's home, like, you know, not, you know Nanny 911 or Wife Swap? yeah. Because I think we like that because we kind of feel bad about our own marriage or our own parenting. And then you see like a three-year-old smoking, you know, carrying a loaded handgun. You're like, I'm not that bad of a parent after all. You know, and that's just the reality is we love to look at the worst parts of other people's lives. Well, the Bible doesn't have any reality TV shows, but we do get to see these families who, man, just have some crazy things about them. And the family that God establishes his covenant with is really as juicy as at any reality show. You know, first we have, we have Father Abraham. Father Abraham was a pagan living in Iraq in the land of Ur, and God saves him by his own mercy and grace and calls him out of that land of Ur. And he saves him and says, I'm going to build a new family through you, and the whole world's going to be blessed through you. Well, he and his wife have two kids, two boys. Well, actually, I love that the start of God's family, the start isn't quite that clean. Abram has one son with his wife, and then he has one son with his girlfriend on the side. <laughs> and so then they raise those two boys, and, and it caused lots of grief and drama. But then Abraham passes on his faith and his covenant relationship with God to his son Isaac. And Isaac marries his one true love, Rebecca. But then for 20 years, they battle infertility. And for 20 years, they're praying that God would give them a son who would carry on this covenant, this faith, the, the promises that God has given them. And that's where we're going to pick up our story today. But maybe today, maybe today you're waiting for something. Maybe you've been waiting for that child like Isaac and Rebecca. Maybe you're waiting to, to meet someone you can spend your life with. Maybe you're just waiting to, to really know, is God real? Is he not real? Maybe it's a job transition, whatever it is, that if you are in a season of waiting right now, that you are not alone. You are in good company. Before we dive into today to God's word, would you just join me in prayer? God, I thank you that you are here in this place. And God, that you are our living hope. 
You sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. But that crushing, that moment was just a moment. And then he rose again three days later in victory so that we too can experience victory over death and sin and the grave. Lord, help us just to see life and relationships as you see them. Lord, I pray that everyone in here would receive from you today what they need to hear. They would leave blessed, that this time would be fruitful. You'd fill them with your love and grace and your peace. In your name we pray, amen. Let's pick up our story in Genesis chapter 25. We're actually going to cover quite a lot of scripture today. So uh, the scripture will be here behind me. You can follow along on your, on your phone if you, as well, or later maybe uh, in your small group or in your own personal time. You want to read through these chapters. But we're going to start in Genesis 25, verse 21 and through 22. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? I love this. Rebecca went from 20 years of desperately wanting to be pregnant, and then she is, and then she's like, what is going on? What is happening to me? But I love that Rebecca took her concerns to the Lord. That's so good that when we are experiencing things that we don't know why this is happening, friendships are good, small groups are good, family is good, but ultimately we want to take those requests to God, and God listens. Take your concerns to God. So Rebecca's pregnant with these twins, and they're wrestling inside her womb. And I love this. The first time we see Jacob, he's wrestling. And in a couple weeks, we're going to see Jacob have the ultimate fighting match against, well, I'll say that for a couple weeks. But even in his womb, we see Jacob is wrestling. Verse 23, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Isaac was 40 when he got married, and 20 years they waited and prayed that God gave them a child. And finally, he blessed them with twins. And the first time we see Jacob, he's grabbing his brother's heel, so he gets his name, which means heel grabber, which also means deceiver. And Jacob gets stuck with this name because of something he did when he's a tiny little baby. He's labeled early on, but how many of us have that same kind of experience where maybe before we're even conscious of our own actions, we get labeled as something? Maybe your parents said, oh, he's the strong-willed one, or she's the smart one. Or if you're the middle child and the only son, you're the good-looking one, you know? We all get labeled for, for something. And a lot of us get labeled before we even know what we're doing. And so why would Jacob do this? Why would baby Jacob grab the heel of his brother? Well, in this culture, the firstborn gets a bigger piece of the pie. And Jacob is born with this me-first mentality. See, if you don't believe in original sin, that we're all born broken in need of a savior, then you haven't spent much time around kids. Because <laughs> kids will teach you that, man, we live in a, in a me-first culture. And if you don't believe in the devil, then you haven't spent any time around junior high kids. Amen? <laughs> and it's not always them, but sometimes they're friends. Oh, my word, things they say to each other. You know, when I get home from work, my kids run to give me a huge hug, and it's like, oh, that's so sweet. You think it's about me, but it's actually a competition of who can get to dad first. Because we all have this kind of me-first mentality. You know, 
God called Jacob's grandfather Abraham out of the land of Ur, but the reality is I think a lot of us still live in that Ur mentality. We don't just want to be smart. We want to be smarter than our siblings. You know, we don't just want to have green grass someday when the snow melts. We want our grass to be greener than someone else. We just want to take, you know, the best vacations, want our vacation to be better -er than everyone else. You know, we live in this kind of me-first mentality. And so Isaac and Rebecca, they have these twin boys. In the middle of the story, of Jacob and Esau, there's this element that we don't really understand, again, about this, this birthright. So I'm just, real quick, I'm going to cover this, that in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, we don't really have anything the equivalent of it. It's, it's this birthright. It's incredibly valuable. The one who had the birthright would get sometimes double or triple the amount of wealth and inheritance as the other siblings. Also, whoever had the birthright would become the judge for that family. And so when you had issues, you know, how are we going to resolve this? He didn't vote on it. Simply, the oldest who had the birthright, he'd sit down as judge. Everyone else would sit, you know, at his feet, and he'd make the decision, and everyone had to abide by it. So this birthright was incredibly valuable. It gave you power. It gave you authority. It gave you wealth. And, and why would you ever want to give up your birthright? That is so incredibly important. Let's pick up our story in verse 27. When the boys grew up, we're actually jumping ahead about 40 years now, Esau, the older, was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, the dad, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Jacob's the younger son. He's a little softer. He's with mom in the kitchen. You're together, they're watching you know, replays of you know, Downton Abbey, and they're, they're baking. And Esau, he's a hairy man. He's a man's man. He's a, he's a hunter, a womanizer, a gambler. Dad loves him. He's the kind of guy you know, that, that dads want as a son. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Now, you have to pause here, because I didn't grow up with brothers. How many of you had brothers growing up? How many of you had older brothers growing up? So here's what I've been told, because some of my best friends have brothers, is that there's always something that the older brother has that the younger brother wants. Is that true? And so... What I've heard is that younger brothers often kind of wait for that opportunity. Because, like, I don't often have power over my older brother. And once I do, like, I got that request locked and loaded. Maybe it's, like, to drive your car. Maybe it's to wear that certain shirt or whatever it might be. And so this is kind of Jacob's mentality. He's the younger brother. He's always underneath Esau. He's always looking for his opportunity. And so right here in this moment, he's been cooking his stew. He's at home. His brother comes in. He's like, give me some of that stew. And so he's thinking, man, for the first time, I have some power. I have something that my brother wants. And so what's he going to do? He's going to start big, right? And then he's going to work his way down. He's like, what's the, what's the most outlandish thing I could ask for for my brother? Well, his birthright. That's crazy. Why would you ever give up your birthright? You know, that, that's, that's your wealth. That's your authority. All that stuff. He's like, well, let's work with that and then work down. And maybe, like, you know, my brother will give me his old beat, beat up camel. You know, whatever it might be. And so he starts and he says, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. He's starting big. And Esau says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? All right, now first, it's like, dude, you just walked into camp. Like, you might be hungry and famished, but there's other people around there, servants. Like, someone can get your food. Like, calm down a little bit. You're not about to die. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. This, this symbol of, of his wealth and authority and all this stuff. 
It's like, how could he, how could he possibly think that's a good trade? To, to trade all that away for just a bowl of stew. Who would do that? Well, the reality is I think you and I do that. If it's the right bowl of stew. I think so often we can get caught up in what we want in the immediate that we lose sight of what is most important. And so we make these little compromises. You know, who would sell their birthright, their future? Who would throw away their career, their marriage, their respect to their children, their reputation, their influence? If it's the right bowl of stew, I think you and I would do it. Because appetites are powerful. Appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. And so every year, every month, we're going to have these opportunities to be offered a temporary bowl of stew, something that is about now and not about later, that you're going to be tempted to make that trade. It could be anything from just giving in to the terrorist demands of your toddler. Be like, whatever, you can have that candy. You can have, you know, ice cream for dinner to reaching out to that ex-girlfriend on Facebook to lying on that expense report at work. Like you and I are tempted all the time to trade for immediate pleasure and give away our future. Instead, the wise way to live is to focus on what's important instead of what we want most in the immediate. To focus on what is most important than what we want in the immediate. So Esau trades away his birthright, but as the oldest, he still do his father's blessing. We're going to jump ahead to Genesis 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Isaac's about 100 years old now. He thinks he's going to die soon, but the reality is he's actually going to live for another 10, 20 more years. He's kind of like one of those old Honda Civics that, you know, it's leaking a little oil, but it keeps running and running and running. That's Isaac. He's got a lot of years left, but he wants to pass on his blessing now to his oldest son. And he says, now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, first problem. This is happening in secret. They are sinning. See, back in Genesis 25, God said that the older was going to serve the younger. But dear old dad Esau, he loves his older, wild hunter son more. And so in secret, he's going to try to give his blessing to his favorite son. This helps set up our tension. Verse 5, now Rebekah was listening. <laughs> you got to love this. Rebekah is having her ear outside of the tent, listening in. It's a bit of a busybody. Like, what's going on? Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to her son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob. Now, remember, her son's not a young boy. He's about 40 years old at this time. That's how old I am. And so remember that when they're scheming. She says, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. And so Rebekah overhears, dear old dad's doing the wrong thing and they're doing this in secret. So what does she say? Hey, we should pray about this. Let's, let's talk to them. Should we do the right thing? She's like, no, let's do our own scheme. She says, now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. She's like, here's the plan, son. We're going to trick the blind old man and have him give you the blessing. And she's kind of like, Adam's wife Eve or Abraham's wife Sarah, she's going to take things into her own hands. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. She's like, 
mom, my brother's a Wookiee. You know, I'm like one of those Instagram models. I'm hairless. I got no hair on me. Like, he's going to know it's not me. He says, perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. It's like, dude, yeah, you will be mocking him. You're pretending to be your brother. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. Jacob's like, this sounds like a good plan, mom, but what happens if we rip off my brother and then we get found out? And she's like, just listen to what I say, son. Moms and dads, don't just say, listen to me because I'm your parent. What we need to do is teach our kids to obey God, amen? So the reality is that we live under authority of God and our kids live under authority of us. We have to teach them that mom and dad are under authority of God and here's the way that God wants us to live and you're not gonna do this just because I say it is, but we're concerned with teaching our kids to obey God. And so he went and took them and brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebecca took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. All right, a couple questions again. First, Esau is 40 years old. He's a married man. Why are his clothes in his mom's house? And second, her other son, who's also 40, Jacob, why is she, you know, dressing her son? Like, if my mom was still dressing me for church, like, that would not be healthy, right? This family is jacked up. Like, they got some issues. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So she put some fur on her, you know, hairless son to make him seem more masculine. And it's like, you got to love this family. Like, if you're like me, you're already feeling better about the family that you come from. So they're going to trick Isaac, his blind, old, dear old dad. They're going to trick him. Like, even today, you're not a follower of Jesus. You know, maybe you're an atheist. You're just not sure about all this. You're like, that's, that's not okay. Like, you agree. It's not good to trick blind old guys, Right? So he went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Jacob's giving God the credit for his lie. He's like, you know, I just opened up my tent. I, you know, I shot an animal. I just jumped into my meat pot and here we go. Jacob is sinning and blaming the Lord. Like, this is blasphemy. He's lying to his dear old dad. This is one jacked up family. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. So Jacob gets the blessing from his dad. And if you read on in the story, we're not going to cover it today. Esau comes home from hunting, and, and, and he realizes he's been duped. And he is angry. And he's got his weapons, and he's out for blood. And what happens is then Jacob has to run for his life. But see, what, here's the truth, that you can get so good at pretending to be someone else that the people close to you don't even know who you really are. Jacob was so good at pretending to be Esau that his dad didn't even know who the real Jacob was. Jacob steals the blessing that should have been Esau's. He steals his birthright, then he steals his blessing. And so Esau is angry. Jacob goes on the run. Jacob actually goes on the run for 21 years. And if you read ahead in the story, I think one of the most sad things to me is that Rebecca, who loves her son, 
Jacob more than Esau. And so she schemes to get him the blessing, and then he has to run, and Rebecca actually never sees her son again. She dies before Jacob finally comes home after 21 years. See, it's possible to see, get what seems like a blessing, but the way you get it leaves you on the run because it wasn't you who got blessed. See, God can't bless who you pretend to be. God can't bless Jacob dressed like Esau. I don't know about you, but there's more than one Eric. There's the me and there's the me sometimes that I pretend to be, the one who has it all together, the one who you know, always has patience with his kids, who doesn't want anyone to think he's too driven or ambitious or that nothing rattles him. Maybe like you, there are masks you put on. Maybe there's fur you put on your arms to be a little more masculine or to pretend to be someone that you think people want you to be. But we're going to see in the story of Jacob over these next couple of weeks is that God can't bless who you pretend to be. And Jacob finally gets to the point, we're going to see this in, in the next couple of weeks, where he's laid bare who he truly is. And that's when God can start to do work in his life. What good is a blessing from your father Isaac if you can't even stay in the house after you get it? Jacob's on the run for the next 21 years. So you and I, we learn how to wear Esau's clothes. You can fool your dad, but you can't fool yourself. You may fool your neighbor, but you can't fool God. You might be able to put these filters on your Instagram selfies and pretend to be someone you're not, but you can't fool God. God can't minister to your mask. Jesus can't save your selfie. And so what God invites us is to come forward, to take off the mask, to take off Esau's clothes, to take off the goat hair, and all the things we think we need to be, and instead say, God, this is who I am. And see, that's where then God can start to do a work. When we stop pretending, when we start to get honest. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up. These last couple of weeks, last couple of months, uh, just personally have been hard on me. It's just some rough stuff going on. And what God has finally helped me understand is that the way towards healing and hope is to be completely honest about that with him and to hold the tension to say, what happened is probably for the best. And I understand that now, but also, I'm upset and I'm hurt and I'm angry. And that's okay. And you can hold those opposing things in your hands. You can say, God, I believe you and I trust you that, that you are gonna bring blessings and favor into my life. And I believe that you're gonna give me that child or that spouse or that job. While also saying, but God, I'm also scared. I don't know what's gonna happen next. I don't know what you're gonna do in this situation. And that's completely Okay. I love the book of Psalms because we have these songs where the writers are just being gut level honest with God. If you want to be the kind of person who can see things from other people's perspective, to have the healthiest marriage and parenting and relationships you have, the first step isn't to just learn some good 
tips or, you know, some principles. The first step is to take off that mask, to take off the clothes that you're pretending to be, and to get honest with God. What I want to encourage you this week is take some time. Maybe it's a journal. Maybe on your computer, however they might be. And just kind of stream of consciousness, just some thoughts, and share those with God. God, I'm hurt. I'm angry. I'm upset. God, I'm just, I'm sad. I don't know why. Be honest with God about what you are really going through. And that's where God then is going to come and meet us. If you read ahead to the story, while he's on the run, Jacob has this vision where he sees the angels coming down. He says, the Lord is in this place, but I didn't know it. And it isn't until later that he actually meets God face to face and wrestles with him. But maybe today you're at that place where you're like, wow, God is in this place. I didn't know it because I've been so caught up in myself and what's going on. This week, too, I want you to give you an assignment to write this down that 10 years from now, in the year 2030, 10 years from now, this is what I want and desire. And whatever that comes, what do you want to see God do in your marriage if you're married? What do you want God to do in your church, in your children, maybe in your grandchildren, in your profession, in your community? And see, when we start to have a bigger vision for what God wants for us, that's going to reframe our appetites. See, we need to focus on what's important instead of just what is immediate. I think both, you and I, we we identify with both Jacob and Esau. Maybe right now you're about to trade what is most important for a bowl stew. Maybe there's that cute girl at the gym and you've been flirting with her. And you've been contemplating doing something and trading away what is most important for just some pleasure in the immediate. Maybe there's something at work where you're tempted to just kind of fudge the numbers a little bit. And the consequences could be dire. But here's what I know about you is that you and I, we don't understand what God wants to accomplish in us and through us. Through your children, through your grandchildren, your nieces and your nephews. So what we want to do is we want to reframe and refrain. We want to reframe our perspective and focus on what's most important. And we want to refrain from making a trade that we're going to regret for the rest of our lives. Whatever you do, don't trade what's most important for a bowl of stew. You and I are also like Jacob. Or we pretend to be someone we're not because we think we need to pretend to be blessed. And God wants us to lose our need to pretend to be the parents, spouses, and people that God wants us to be. God wants us to drop our masks. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to give an opportunity just to respond. You can stay seated. If you want, if you want to stand in the song, that's totally fine too. And I want this song just to be a time of response to allow God to do a work in us as we, as we take our masks off and just say, God, this is me exposed with all my warts and insecurities. God, I'm tired of pretending. This is who I am. And allow the worship band to sing the song over you. If you want to sing along, just open your heart to what God wants to do. I'm going to come up and close us after that. And then as we, after we close our service, I'm going to invite the prayer team to be down here. And after our service closes, 
you would like someone to pray for you, I want you to come down. The band's gonna keep playing quietly after, as, as we end our service. And we have some people who just love to pray with you. Maybe today it's just saying, hey, I realize I'm, I'm about ready to make a mistake and I'm gonna trade what is most important for something I just want in the immediate. Maybe it's just saying, hey, I need help. I've been pretending to be someone else my whole life. I've been pretending to be the person that I thought my parents wanted me to be. And I don't even know who I really am. Help me to take off my mask so that I can be real and authentic before God so that then he can do that work in me. Maybe there's just some pain. Maybe like Isaac and Rebecca, who waited 20 years before these twins came. Maybe you're waiting. Maybe you're hoping in this season. We want to pray for you. We want to hope with you. I'm going to pray, and then our band's going to lead us in this song. God, I thank you that you are here with us. God, I thank you for these families that you recorded in the Old Testament who are just as messed up and broken as we are. God, I pray that we would wait patiently, like Isaac and Rebecca, that we would not lose hope. God, I pray for all the husbands in this room, that we would follow the example of Isaac, that we'd pray for our spouses in a regular, faithful way. God, I pray for those of us who are maybe just tempted to trade what's most important for what we want in the immediate and, and, and we're gonna make a mistake. And God, I pray that you would save us from that. That we would repent to turn and follow your path. And Jesus, I pray that we would just take off these masks, that we lose our need to pretend, that we just be open and honest because that's when then you can come in and do a work in our lives and in our hearts. God, I pray that every single person in this room, God, that we would feel your Holy Spirit come upon us, that we'd feel you smiling on us, that we would sense that you are that good, perfect Father just waiting for the kids to come run. And so, God, you invite us to come in right now. So, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us, we would just come to you in boldness and confidence, knowing that you say, come. You invite us to bring all our hurts, all our pain, all our mistakes to you. 